Well, there's a lot of preparations going on in society to reopen our schools. Those of you that have children in school, as do we, you know, we're constantly hearing new plans and new processes and new schedules. So we're all trying to figure out how do we prepare to educate our children this fall. Uh, many people, of course, are taking time to in churches to prepare for their ministry startup. Normally, we kind of rev things back up in September, so we know that people are back from vacation and so forth. So while this falls a little different for many churches, lots of churches spending time preparing themselves for the fall. Uh, in a little while, the harvests are going to come off the fields, and if you have gardens in your backyard, the, the vegetables, if they're not already, are going to be ripened, and you'll be making your salsa or tomato sauce or whatever it is that you make. Uh, lots of things need to be prepared for in advance, don't they, in life? So life is not just necessarily about living in the moment and taking care of what we need to take care of today. Many of us spend parts of our day or parts of our week preparing for tomorrow, preparing for next week, preparing for what's going to happen a few months from now. Now let's just park on this word prepare for a little bit today. I want to talk about this concept of preparing ourselves for eternity. When we use the word prepare, there's really at least three components to that. In order to prepare, you first of all have to have the capacity to look ahead, to identify either where you're going or what you need to brace yourself for or what you need to plan for financially or time-wise or whatever it might be. Secondly, you then need to know or at least hypothesize what will happen. And then the third step of preparing is the actual planning process. So we look ahead, we hypothesize or we know what might happen. And then the third step is to plan for it. Now the Bible talks a lot about the future. It doesn't just talk about the future, but it talks a lot about the future. And in the Word of God, as we read our scriptures, there's plenty of places in the Bible that call us to prepare or look forward to or be ready for what is to come. Now, in the Word of God, it's the same thing as preparing for anything else. We look ahead through the Word of God. We discover what's going to happen. We don't hypothesize when it comes to the Word of God. We know what's going to happen. And then we plan our lives or our responses accordingly. Amos told us to prepare to meet our God. Uh, Peter told us to be prepared to give a defense. Paul taught us in 1 Corinthians to always be on the alert. These are some of many passages in the Bible that call us to look ahead, to consider what's going to happen, and then to plan our lives for the fact that one day the events of Scripture are going to come to pass. One day you and I are going to meet God. One day we are going to be held accountable for whether or not we have gently and respectfully, as Peter taught us, shared our faith or not shared our faith. We need to be prepared for demonic attack, which could come before the end of the service or could come upon you tomorrow or next week. The Bible is big into helping God's people prepare for the future. But at times, we forget that. And we live too much in the moment. And we're not necessarily prepared for what God has in store for us in the future. So I want to ask you, are you prepared to meet your God? 
Are you prepared for the end of the world as we know it? Are you prepared for the inauguration of the fullness of the kingdom of God? Are you prepared for that? And do you know you're prepared for it? And are there steps you have taken that are evident in your life to prove that you are well prepared for it? Find your way to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to study verses 1 through 11. And here we have five truths to help us prepare for the future. Five truths to help us to prepare for the future. Five things you either need to know or five things you need to do or five things you need to plan for. Five truths to help you prepare for the future. I'm going to read all 11 verses and then we will go back and comment on it part by part. So here's the word of God, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Five truths that will help you to prepare for the future. The first one is this. Christ, our Lord, is coming back. You see that in verse 2? Christ, our Lord, is coming back. There are many, many doctrinal truths found in the Word of God. The word doctrine means teaching. There are many, many doctrinal truths found in the Word of God. They're all important. But some are central to the Christian faith. They include the authority of Scripture, the triunity of God, the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection for our sins, the need to trust in him and him alone for our salvation, the full deity and the full humanity of Jesus Christ, and into that mix, you have to put the second coming. Certain doctrines, we could disagree on them, we'd, we could dispute them. Maybe today we'll talk a little bit about some end times timelines. You could have different opinions on the precise events and orders of events and still be a bona fide God-fearing Christian. But the second coming cannot ever be relegated to a secondary doctrine. 
It's fundamental to the Christian faith. The whole house of cards collapses if Jesus isn't coming back. And here we're told that Jesus is coming back. The language that Paul uses is language that would have been famous in the, New, in the Old Testament. The Old Testament prophets used this a lot. They talked about the day of the Lord. If you've read the scriptures, have you seen that language? The day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. The prophets talk a lot about that under the Old Covenant scriptures. And the day of the Lord does not refer to God's daily judgment over a Christian who may be living in sin. And the day of the Lord does not refer to God's wrath being poured out on a particular nation at a particular point in time who have transgressed his will and ways. The day of the Lord always refers to a final cataclysmic outpouring and display of the full wrath of God upon evildoers. It's the big one. It's the one where God says, enough's enough. I've tolerated, I've warned, I've dispensed small amounts of wrath here and there. But the day of the Lord refers to a final cataclysmic event where God once and for all destroys evildoers. It is not used to describe the general wrath of God. So when he talks here about the day of the Lord, he's talking about the events surrounding the, the, coming, the final coming of the Lord. The imagery that is used to help us to think clearly about this event is the imagery of a thief. Now, this is kind of a negative illustration, but the idea is that thieves do not announce their coming. Uh, my son Levi works for a company here in Windsor and recently got up and went to the shop and someone had stolen his vehicle and was prepared to steal another vehicle and it ended up costing the company like $30,000. They found out who the guy was and because of legalities, didn't do anything essentially. Um, the thief didn't send an email in advance and say, hey, just to let you know, I'm gonna be coming at a certain time. Uh, thieves are successful by virtue of their trickery and treachery. And so this reminds us that we do not know when Jesus is going to come back, but we know he will come back at some point. And the church now has been waiting for two millennia. Maybe we're going to wait for five more hours. Maybe we're going to wait for 500 more years. We don't know. But what we do know is that Jesus is going to one day Come back. Now, if you are a Christian, you already know that. It's not new. And as he writes to this church, he acknowledges that. He's like, I don't need to really write this to you. You already know it. It's like, well, why are you writing us something we already know? It's like the Christian that comes to church. When I come to church, I expect to hear something new every week. Why would you tell me something I already know? Well, he tells us something we already know to remind us of our eschatological hope and the surety of our deliverance because in the moment, emotions and circumstances, we all know this, can take our eyes off the future and force us to live and react and our emotions to be such that they're dictated by the, the present. We all know this is true. 
You know, I know Jesus is coming back. I've known that for decades. But in my heart, sometimes I forget. In my actions, sometimes it's not evident. In my emotional responses, it's not always being proven, being lived out. Now, no true believer, if, you, if they believe in the second coming of Christ, and all true believers do, no true believer, and I don't need to convince anybody of this, but no true believer will ever be 100% content in this present world. No true believer. I think there's some in the church that seem to be quite content in the present world, and that just demonstrates that they're immature. But no true believer is ever really going to be content in the moment, even on the best of days. And by the way, life, by God's grace, still has many blessings attached to it. Good food, it's a blessing. Good weather, it's a blessing. The ability to travel, to marry well, to have wonderful children. There's a lot of things in this life that are blessings and that we appreciate and that we're thankful to the Lord for. But at the same time, all of us who have our eyes fixed on the future know there's something desperately wrong with this world. There's always this sense of being unsettled by it. There's this sense of anger at times at the unrighteousness we see. There's disappointment as hopes are dashed. We look around us in the present, many things to be thankful for, but this world is a mess. Don't you agree? It's a mess. And it's getting messier seemingly by the day. But we fix our eyes on something that is to come, and that is the second coming of Christ. You know, churches can be divided about many things. They can be divided about music style. They can be divided about service times. They can be divided about their form of liturgy. They can be divided about lesser issues, about the charismatic gifts, about the timelines of the end. But this is not an area where churches can afford to be divided. The Lord Jesus is coming back. Are you living as if he will return? Is your life marked by regular confession for sin? Or are you let the sin build up and not dealing with it? Thinking that, well, you know, he hasn't come back for 2,000 years. The chances of him coming back in my lifetime are slim to none. Is that your mindset? Or are you regularly confessing your sin to the Lord? Are you a person that's engaged in Christian worship because you know that this is what you will be doing for all of eternity and in the moment God is justly deserving of our worship and praise? Are you serving him? Not with your leftovers, not with your spare time. It is the, the whole of your life, the way you conduct yourself at work and the way you raise your children and the way you interact with fellow students. Are these reflective of a person that has a thoroughly Christian worldview and sees all of life as a sacred opportunity to serve the Lord? Christ is coming back. Secondly, the self-secure will not escape his wrath. Look at verse 3. While people are saying, there is peace and security. This, this statement is meant to reflect this 
this false sense of stability that so many in our generation seem to have. I don't need to worry about heaven or hell. I have lots of money or lots of friends or a huge social media following. While many are saying there is peace and security, it says then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. They will not escape the wrath of God. I've seen my wife going to labor five times. And some of them were a little more long and drawn out. Some of them were pretty quick. And you're sort of prepared, but you're not really prepared. This illustration reminds us of how sudden God could come back upon us. The world is, is pregnant in a sense. It's, it's ripe. But at the same time, you don't really know. Ladies, you've been pregnant. You have a date on the calendar. Kid could come a month early, a couple weeks late. You kind of know the general time frame, but you don't really know. It's, it's a waiting game. We know Jesus is going to come back sometime soon, but we don't really know when. Sometimes the secularist, or the secularist rather, lives their lives with a whole lot of hope for and reliance upon the present. You hear secular people, godless people talk, right? You hear them on social media, you hear them around the proverbial water cooler at work. And there's sort of a handful of stereotypical things they're looking forward to. In our generation, a lot of talk about climate change. If we can just fix the climate, smooth sailing. You know, reduce carbon emissions, smooth sailing. People are actually putting their hope in that. If we could get to a point of peace on earth, if we could just all kind of elect the right government at the same time and treat each other well, all the problems are going to be solved. If we could just rev up our economy another notch or two, the problems are going to be solved. Now, we appreciate peace and security in the here and now. We want the best governors we can. We want good air to breathe, healthy food, economic stability. Of course we want those things. But we all know that they are temporary. And even in our own lifetimes, in the moment, we've seen countries that perhaps 20, 30 years ago would almost have seemed invincible. Increasingly marked by instability, including Canada, including the United States of America. Countries that historically have valued pluralism. Everybody can come. All views, all perspectives are permitted. But because people are inherently selfish and without God is the ultimate ruler, what do we see as a result of radical pluralism? We see an us versus them mindset increasingly present in our world. Political parties at absolute opposite ends of the spectrum. People advocating for radically new forms of government. People wanting to dismantle Western culture itself. These aren't just you know, dis disagreement about whether the HST should be this percent or that percent. You know, or whether the road should 
some new road should be put in in such and such a place or what the speed limit should be. And our, our country, if you haven't noticed, is coming apart at the seams. And there's only going to be three or four options. There's going to be revival. There's going to be revolution. Or maybe civil war at some point. Oh, not, not in our lifetime. No, that's, that's, that's 1800s kind of stuff. Don't kid yourself. Western nations are coming apart at the seams. Well, this is a sad thing, but at the same time, it shouldn't surprise us because we do not live our lives reliant upon the state. We do not live our lives reliant upon stability. It's like, ah, World War II, that'll never happen again. That's some archaic past generation. Don't kid yourself. But we don't rely upon these things. Unfortunately, there's many people that live their lives with this smug self-dependence, this self-reliance. There's going to be peace. There's going to be security. And this is a wake-up call. Don't trust in chariots and horses, but trust in the name of the Lord. If you've ever seen the movie Gladiator, there's a lot of uh, great lines in that movie. But at one point, as Maximus is out in the arena during his uh, final days, he talks to the evil Commodus. And he says to Commodus, as Commodus brags and postures and you know, presents himself as this very narcissistic emperor, he says, the time, the time for honoring yourself will soon be at an end. And really, folks, that is true of all evildoers. The time for honoring yourself, the time for your smug independence and godlessness is soon going to come to an end. The Bible teaches it. It will happen. The question is, are we prepared for it? Are we living as if this is true? Third truth in verses 6 to 8 is to be alert. Alert people act differently. When temptation creeps in, and it will, you respond to it proactively. You denounce it. You move away from it. People who aren't alert get sucked into it, succumb to it. You have to always be spiritually alert. We always have to be spiritually alert. I don't care if you've been saved for four minutes or 40 years. You have to be spiritually alert. This is a spiritually charged world. The devil wants to take you down. He wants to take the church down. And I think one of the ways that the devil works in the Western church is to try to convince us that he doesn't exist or he's not really all that interested in us. He's very subtle. He's very sneaky. He's very sly. And we see in so much of the Western church today, this rampant mediocrity, neutrality. It's more Christians today yawning than singing out praises to the Lord. That is in their hearts. Just kind of living their lives. Now, a couple words here that are important for us to think about. The one is the word sober, sobriety. It appears twice in these verses. And to be sober, we know, is to be clear-minded. Now, we use this typically in reference to the abuse of alcohol. 
If you abuse alcohol, your, your mind gets all fuzzy and you can't think properly. You make a fool out of yourself. Maybe you get violent, do stupid things, run people over. One of my boys last night was driving down Highway 20 there outside of Harrow, 9 o'clock at night. There's a guy, 80-kilometer-an-hour road, walking down the yellow line, dressed in dark clothing. Looked kind of drunk. We're called to be sober, clear-minded, as opposed to fuzzy-brained. Now, clear-mindedness can only happen, hear me clearly, if you consult the right authority. It's not, well, I'm just going to try to organize my thinking a little bit better. Or I'm going to try to work myself up into you know, clear-mindedness. Clear-mindedness is the end result of consulting the right authority. Now, there's a lot of so-called authorities in our world. And many people in the church today forget to consult the final authority on matters of faith and practice, which is the word of God. We need to be careful not to be poor thinkers. There's many people in the churches today that are poor thinkers, not because they aren't smart, they have a low IQ. They're poor thinkers because they're not consulting the right authority. They're not into the word of God, digesting the word of God, discussing the word of God. Instead, they listen to news agencies to tell them the truth, the facts, just the facts. Or they spend time enthralled with whatever comes out of the mouths of their godless professors. Or they put all their trust in atheists, atheist scientists. We've seen in our culture since the time of the Enlightenment, really, an idolization of science and scientific conclusions, which interestingly seem to change more than a lot quicker than church doctrine does. Lying politicians, even false supposed Bible teachers, or the majority viewpoint. Hey, if everybody believes it, it must be true, right? They spend more of their time getting their truth from Fox News or CBC or CNN than they do the Bible. So here we are called to prepare for war. This is a similar passage to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 18, which speaks of the spiritual armor. Here we have a ref reference to a couple pieces of spiritual armor, the breastplate of faith and hope. By the way, in Ephesians chapter 6, it's called the breastplate of righteousness. So a little, little hermeneutical tip for you, little interpretive tip for you. When you are reading Ephesians chapter 6, a lot of Bible teachers love to try to, try to draw parallels between the virtue that is listed there and the actual piece of armor. So they're like, well, uh, righteousness protects our chest because it's the breastplate of righteousness. And um, you know, we, we go around sharing the gospel, so feet fitted with the good news. And they, they try to over-interpret over the passage, drawing direct parallels between the, the nature, like how that piece of armor would function in a battlefield and how that virtue uh, functions. Well, you just need to find one exception to that in Scripture and your theory is kind of out the door, and this is one of them. Because here it talks about the breastplate of faith and the breastplate of hope. So the, the point is not so much, well, this protects our chest, but just be a person of faith and hope. 
be a person of righteousness. Uh, be a person that speaks the truth of God's word. In Ephesians chapter six, it's actually not a call to read the Bible. It's a different reference there. It's a call to speak forth the truth that you've learned from the scriptures. So here we have a call to speak or, or to live our lives with faith and hope, not drawing too close of a connection between the armor and the godly, the piece of armor and the godly pursuit, but just seeing that righteousness and faith and hope and these wonderful things do protect us. And then we have a second piece of armor, which is exactly the same as the one mentioned in uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17. It's also mentioned by the prophet Isaiah, by the way, if you want to look that up. And it's the helmet, a helmet. It's called the helmet of the, ho of the hope of salvation. So again, not getting too worked up about, oh, well, salvation protects our mind and righteousness protects our hearts, not over-interpreting the text. What these passages are teaching us is that you will fail as a warrior for Christ if you do not hold tightly to the hope that is yours and if you do not exercise faith in God and if you are not a person that is trusting in your ultimate vindication, which is really what salvation means. As soon as you forget these things, as soon as you stop living this way, you open up, open yourself up to being shot, to being stabbed, to being run through by the enemy. I've been a Christian long enough to know exactly what this looks like. You know, I, I know what sin is. You don't have to tell me what sin is. You don't have to tell me about my eternal hope that Jesus is coming back. I know that. But I need to be reminded of this because so often I, I, I just get distracted. And we need to guard ourselves against spiritual attack. Let me share with you pastorally 10 marks of sleepy, drunk Christians. These are the two words used here. Sleepiness is a metaphor for not being prepared. Drunkenness is a metaphor for not being prepared. Here, here are some things I see in Christians that are really marks of sleepy, drunk Christians. Hopefully they're not present in your life, but they might be. And if they are, deal with it. Live differently. How about this one? No sense of urgency. Just living for the moment. No real indication that they are headed toward heaven and one day will have to give an account before the king for the way that they live their lives. Does it not tell us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, for we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that each will receive what is due him for the things done in the body, whether they be good or bad. Even as believers, we're going to be judged before God for how we've lived our lives at the Bema seat. No sense of urgency. They trust lost people to lead them. We need to respect lost people, but don't trust lost people. We need to honor the lost people that God has put into place to lead us, respect them. But we're never called to trust them. We need to be careful about that. Third, uninformed. They, they're in a battle. They've not prepared. They have no clue that they're in a battle. They have no biblical insight. It's not necessary for you to spend five years in seminary to understand enough of the Bible to equip yourself against spiritual attack. But just like you need daily food unless you're fasting, just like you put your clothes on every day to protect yourself from the elements, it's hot, it's cold, and you need to dress accordingly. So in the same way, every one of you should without fail be in the word of God somewhat, 
even if it's just for a couple minutes, every single day, every day. Not, well, I got out of the habit. No, no, you, you do it every day. You don't forget to eat, do you? You don't forget to get dressed. You don't forget to wake up. You, you have habits. You can make being in God's word a habit. I'm not saying this to brag, but some of you are new. Many of you have heard this before. I just share this as a testimony. I've, I have spent time in God's word every single day since I was 20 years old. When I mean every day, I do mean every day. Oh, but you missed a few days? Never, not in 27 years, not one, not one day. There's not one day in 27 years I've not read my Bible, not one single day. Do I always get you know, radical truths out of it, transformation? No, but it's a habit. I wouldn't even know how to fall asleep at night without reading at least a few verses. Make it a habit in your life to be in the word of God. And we have access to it. I had a friend text me lately. He was doing some ministry out at the greenhouses in Leamington. He said, do you think we, I could get some Spanish Bibles, but I need them today? I said, well, why? we don't have any Spanish Bibles in our church. But you know what? All the people you're ministering to, I can guarantee, already have one on their phones. Isn't it great? We don't have to hand out paper Bibles, really. I mean, it's good to have one, but just download the app. Everybody has access to the Bible now because they have a phone. And there's lots of Bible apps. So there's no excuse for us to not have access to the word of God. It's literally following us around in our pockets. We just need to take it out and spend time in the word of God. Don't be uninformed. Don't be distracted by unimportant issues. You see people getting all worked up about stuff that doesn't really matter. No display of purpose. Matthew 28 calls us to be great commission believers. A lot of people don't seem to be great commission believers. They're more interested in accumulating wealth and making disciples. False views of justice. We, we increasingly see this. A little, little uh, pastoral insight, little, little cultural tip for you. If the world thinks it's a justice issue, it's probably not. Or there's probably some aspect of justice to it, but there's all kinds of lies and pollution in it. I don't march with lost people on very many things. I don't participate in their views of justice because it's usually corrupt, it's usually twisted, there's usually a, another part to the story. When unbelievers who are okay with abortion, who are okay with people picking their own genders, suddenly say that they're big into racial equality, I'm like, mm, I doubt it, I doubt it. I think there's something else going on there. I'm into racial equality because I have a Bible that tells me that God loves all people. I'm into racial equality, but I'm not hitching my wagon to your parade because there's something else to it going on. When people who are normally not Godward suddenly pretend to be Godward, Shouldn't that raise at least a few yellow flags in our minds? It should. So be a discerning believer. Don't be a lemming following the crowd over the cliff. Don't assume that, oh, there's revival in our world. People are suddenly all interested in loving on each other. No, something else going on. 
Be a discerning believer. Seventh, when we love to imitate the world, whether it's through our looks, our language, our lifestyles, we don't take cues from the world as to what's appropriate dress or not appropriate dress, what's appropriate language or what isn't. We take our cue from the Word of God. The Word of God provides us with some basic boundaries for these things. How about this? How do you know a sleepy, drunk Christian? They make no disciples ever. You have people, they get saved, they know the Lord, they, they follow the Lord for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, they die. They have not made one single disciple in their entire lives. Like, how is that even possible? How is it possible to live your entire life in church and never lead someone to Christ and disciple them in the faith, sometimes including your own children? How is that possible? If you're living for the Lord, there is 99.9% of the time going to be some spiritual fruit. But you got to be focused. Not part of the team, meaning not connected to God's people. I know it's easy to get into the habit of not being regular in attendance, and there can be, you know, a, a legalism attached to church attendance. I get all that, but you got to show up and be part of the team in order to be blessed by the gifts that God has given to his people. Or those that just won't change. You know, they just, they just won't change. They're, they're stubborn and they, they hear the word of God preached and their minds automatically go into someone else that needs to hear it. Or they're reading the word of God and they're like, man, I wish my buddy would read this, but they don't see it in themselves. And so we all need to approach the word of God with a certain, a certain openness, a certain vulnerability, a certain transparency, a certain humility, always wanting to honor the Lord a little bit more. Fourth, we have this wonderful truth that while the self-secure will perish, the God-secure will escape wrath. Again, the day of the Lord, this is in verse 9, um, just to remind you, the day of the Lord is a specific point of cataclysmic judgment. Now, if you go to Revelation chapter 6, you can cross-reference that right now if you want, verses 16 and 17, we see there described in that futuristic book, God's wrath being poured out on the nations. So this reference in 1 Thessalonians 5 is probably the same reference or this referring to the same event that is being referred to in Revelation chapter 6. Now, if you go back one chapter in 1 Thessalonians, we preached that last week, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, we, we learn there that all of the church, the saints, we'll call them, both those that have died and those that are currently living will have been taken up, caught up, the text says, to be with the Lord. And then if you go back to Revelation chapter 6 and you start reading a little further into chapter 6 and you get into chapter 7, we see descriptions there of both Jews, described as 144,000, 12,000 from all the 12 tribes, and then after that, descriptions of a global body of Gentile believers. All of them are described as being with the Lord and worshiping the Lord. So while we don't want to get too hard-nosed about the specific events of the future, it, it certainly would seem, if we take these passages into consideration, that when this great pouring out of God's wrath comes upon the earth, believers will already be with the Lord. Now that would then 
taken with the study of the rest of the scripture suggest that prior to the, the great tribulation of the future that God's people will be taken up to him. Now, it's equally possible that God's people will live through the tribulation. They will be taken just before God pours out his wrath, but then they would necessarily have to immediately be brought down to enter into the millennial kingdom, which is possible, but maybe a little strange. So if you were to ask Aaron, what is your view of the end? I would say I lean strongly in, wouldn't die for this, wouldn't split a church over it, and certainly wouldn't require people in our church to believe this. But I would lean strongly in the direction of what's called a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. But I'm also warm to the idea of a post-tribulational rapture of the church. So I wouldn't die for it. I would be probably like 90-10 if you were to ask me for an equation. I think we're probably going to avoid the events leading up to the day of the Lord. But it's equally possible that for part of or a period of time, God will allow the church to sustain great tribulation prior to the coming of the Lord. But what, what, we, what we do know is that we are not destined for wrath. So when, when God finally does pour out his wrath upon the world, we'll be gonzo. We, we won't have to be subject to that pouring out of God's wrath upon the world. In fact, it says in verse 9, which is a beautiful verse, salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. This is the exclusive nature of the gospel, by the way. Don't ever let anybody teach you that you can get to heaven by multiple paths. No, no, no. Thank you. No, that's bad. Bad theology. It's, it's false doctrine. It's heresy, in fact. You can't get to heaven. It's not, well, Jesus died, but you can then, based on his work, you can get to heaven through various paths. Not that theology either. It's through Jesus, surrender to him, knowledge of him, that we come to a saving knowledge of the gospel. Now, what we also need to be reminded of, I'll, I'll just jump ahead to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14, because I don't want, it, I don't want my, my submission to Christ to be interpreted as, well, it's just to make my life better, my future secure. I, I don't want to abuse the gospel that way. I want to understand at all times that it's still ultimately for the glory of God. So in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, while I benefit, look what it says. Um, to this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So to obtain means he's going to get the glory. We get to participate in it. So yes, there are massive benefits to being a Bible-believing, Christ-following Christian. But he's the one that ultimately gets the glory, not us. We just share in it. We benefit from it. And then finally, verse 11, we encourage one another. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So this isn't a you're terrible at it. You need to start doing it. No, it's you're doing it. Keep doing it kind of teaching. To build up is like building a house. In fact, in, in the Greek, the first part of this word comes from the root word oikos, which is the word for house. It's like you build a house. They don't just show up. You build a house. And so we build up the household of faith. How do we build up the household of faith? We remind each other of the second coming. We remind each other of the future. 
We plan for it. We prepare for it. We live in light of it. We talk about this. We talk about it at our funerals. We talk about it when someone's in counseling. We talk about it when someone's discouraged. We talk about it. And we encourage one another. To to encourage is to both comfort and to extol. It's not one or the other. Extol is like, go for it, go for it. You can do it, get going. Comfort is, oh man, that's that's bad. That's I'm sorry to hear that. It's I want to pray for you. It's both of those things. It's 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 a shepherding act, it's it's an acknowledgement of pain, it's it's an it's it's a walking with, and it's a pointing forward. It's a pushing on. It's a let me help pick you up kind of an action. So we we encourage each other and we build each other up. The church gets built up through this. So I hope that today you've been built up. And I hope that you will take this and build others up with it. And that collectively we might together be built up. In a world that is filled with discouragement and distraction. I always feel like I'm, I'm just like the edge of the stage. I always feel like I'm, I'm just on the edge of just <laughs> falling into discouragement. In a world filled with discouragement and distraction, this, this encourages us. It builds us up. It gives us perspective. It helps to prepare us for the future, but it also greatly affects the present.